They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. back with an all-new Keep It. Lewis, do you think I could consider Keep It a small business? Oh, God. Are you are you getting into it with your accountant? Well, I just think that if I go for one more year, then I can get all my... Oh, it's a Kamala it. dig. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I actually don't know the answer. Is Cricket Media an underserved community, though? <laughs> <laughs> the wardrobe department? Maybe. <laughs> I'm also weirdly salty with Crooked because I'm next to a Pod Save America mug right now, which just feels cruel. Yeah. We're our own brand. Whoever set up the mugs, I'm not going to mention any names. That's right. By the way, is it not called Pod Salvage America yet? I mean, like, they should be downgrading the name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are joined today by another guest co-host. Yay. Hi, Joe Gutterwitz. Hi, Ira Madison, the third. Everyone knows my name. Yeah, I know. But you just gave my full name, so I felt formal. <laughs> <laughs> Jill Gutowitz, you are not only a, 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 a powerful queer person on Twitter. Wow, I would describe you. you as a like lesbian gatekeeper and crossing guard. Like you, like material <laughs> lesbian material comes your way, and you and you allow it or don't allow it. Wow, thank yeah. you. I'm so flattered. Also, because I would like in my future to be a lesbian crossing guard. Oh sure. <laughs> there was a crossing. You think guard I ever written a, that movie? Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, there was a crossing guard on my street growing up who was just like big like dykey energy and she was so enthusiastic and we all loved her and I was like that is my future (laughs) at some point I will abandon media and go to a small town and be a lesbian crossing guard I was constantly feuding with my crossing guard oh man you don't say well because I was always running late to school oh what and so I would try to cross the street you know when the light wasn't green Mm -hmm. she was not having it that's a crossing guard I can trust and it wasn't even a crossing guard for me I was in like middle high school at this point and she was crossing guarding younger children yeah and she was like you're giving them a bad example stop uh, it oh i see honestly the full marion williamson stop yeah. it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm kind of on her side she has one job and she's doing it yeah <laughs> and so do you getting to school on time you know what i'm saying yeah everyone's just doing their best also here's my question for you specifically regarding los angeles and i this sounds trite like i'm doing it for stand-up reasons or something where the hell are lesbians hanging out in L.A.? They literally have mm. made themselves so scarce. Yes. And by the way, don't give me this like they're only at home. No, they do go out. I've seen them drink. No, they're at hip hop nights at the Abbey. I one wow. time one time I did go to <laughs> chapel and I was like, oh, it's like Wednesday and there's like a specific situation yeah, here. The chapel, yes. whenever yeah. I hear like good music and not just um, the EDM that um, David Cooley likes to blare into our brains, it's usually <laughs> full of lesbians. Yeah, no, there's like a Wednesday night ladies night, but it doesn't start until like 1130, huh. which is so insane for like a weeknight. Also for lesbians who 
yes, typically are at home. Yeah. It's it's very strange. I've gone there a few times and it is like kind of like walking into the set of the L word because it's not even like a present day lesbian situation. It's very like <laughs> like a snapshot from the 2000s. Like there are vests, there are fedoras, there are loose ties. There's a lot wow. of snapbacks. Yeah. Um, Britney and Madonna are battling against yes. the music on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mad- that is among Madonna's queerest sort of looks, I guess. Her sort of D-tricky uh, yeah. attire and Britney's too. Yeah, a lot okay. of denim. Yeah, Tell and pinstripes for Britney. Yes. Mm. Where else can we find the lesbians? TM. I like apps. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that, they're just on that speaks to me. The sure. internet. I think. Yeah. I like. I don't. I'm. Honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, like, I have a girlfriend now, but like before when I was single, I literally was asked, I was like, where are they? I need you to show yourselves. Oh, so you're like a detective, too. You're trying to. Figure yeah, that. no, okay. they're not here. I also don't know. Like, I don't really have answers. I'm like, yes, you can find a group of L word lesbians on Wednesday nights at 1130 at the Abbey. Other than that, I know there's like they go to Akbar on the east side, but like. That's it. I've been to a craft night there where I saw mm-hmm. some lesbian action. Mm. Yeah. I went to a bar in Atlanta recently. There was like, I've never been to Atlanta. They have a lesbian bar there. I was shocked. I was like, we don't have lesbian bars here. It's so, it, it blows my mind. It truly, it bothers me. It sh- yeah. They should be more integrated into my experience, frankly. And I blame, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to blame you guys. So how about that? <laughs> blame I'm, the lesbians? I, yes, for I'm incredibly no nice and welcoming <laughs> and I feel I've done my part. <laughs> I try to represent at all the like typically gay male pride events. Yeah. I'm like, I'm here. I like Ariana Grande too. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. I love a ponytail and, yeah. a, and, a, and a really long hooded sweater. Yeah, I feel like Ariana Grande is kind of like the great equalizer right now between like queer men and women. Totally, yeah. Because like women like love her. When she has a moment where uh, either she plateaus or like whatever, falls out of favor is a crazy phrase, but like isn't at the peak where she is, I will be very surprised because she keeps it up extremely well. Yeah, yeah. The stands, they're voracious for her. Right, right. Voracious. Yeah. What a word. And she continues to look like a female sea monkey on the back of a cereal box. (laughs) Oh my God. Picture the one that's like lounging, you know, in a in a chair. That's her. That was devastating. I say that nicely. She's like one foot seven. It's not inaccurate. <laughs> wow, we've got quite the show for you today. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. A film. A film by uh, uh, a new director, Quentin Tarantino. The original QT, before Ariana Grande. Who? Then we're going to have a... Very queer conversation with Margaret Cho. It is actually almost painful to me that we're about to meet Margaret Cho. I mean, she's she's been so in my life, my entire life, and she was so the one and remains the one in so many rad ways. Anyway, I, I'm not an emotional person, but Does we'll see what happens. have a restraining order? <laughs> <laughs> if she got into it, I wouldn't. She will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then we will jump into a talk about Old Town Road. Um Record-breaking. 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 And his drama with Pete Buttigieg. Right. LOL. (laughs) (laughs) LOL, indeed. This is Keep It. Keep listening. Well, you know the debates are this week, so subscribe to our What a Debate newsletter that will recap the Democratic primary debates on July 30th and July 31st. Will it also cover whether Marianne Williamson wears a big spooky pendant? I don't know. You'll have to ask Priyanka about that. Because when I say our newsletter, Lewis and I are not actually writing it. (laughs) Anyway, go to votesaveamerica.com slash subscribe. 
Heads up, we're about to launch into a spoilery conversation of Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So if you have not seen it and don't want to hear spoilers, skip ahead about 25 minutes to our interview with Margaret Cho. Quentin Tarantino is back. Did we want it? I'll say this. I did want it for this movie because I wanted him to make a movie about Hollywood. So then he went ahead and did it and I was excited for it. Yes, I think that we are all actually of differing opinions on his newest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is set in 1969 Los Angeles in an alternate timeline where an aging television actor and his stunt double slash longtime friend embark on an odyssey to make a name for themselves and come across the Manson family. And Sharon Tate. I personally love this movie. What? I did. I did. I'm sorry, Joe. I oh see God. it on your face. <laughs> the disappointment. <laughs> I have like a 20 minute monologue for you. I won't do that, but I can't believe you liked it. I, I mean, like overwhelmingly, I just thought it was boring. I have like very complicated feelings on Quentin Tarantino because I like he is like obviously problematic for so many reasons. But I do like a lot of his films. Like I love Kill Bill, mm-hmm. both of them, even though he just said they are one movie. Um, Who's your favorite Kill Bill villain? I mean, I like Lucy Liu. Like we sure. Said. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I was gonna do. I, oh, I, I'm I'm a um, Vernita Green. Vernita uh, Vivica Fox. I do love Vernita Green. Uh, the whole cereal is, box gun yeah. thing. That's like his best <laughs> moment to me. Oh my god, that was so good. Yeah, Ugh. I think that Jackie Brown is a masterpiece. Yeah. To be honest, I thought of that movie at one point during this film. Yeah. See if you can guess one. Well, it's it's very. Um, Jackie Brown, you know, it it reminds me a lot of Jackie Brown and sort of Pulp Fiction, right? It's very much a hangout movie, right? Which is mm-hmm. what he hasn't done in forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess The Hateful Eight is sort of a hangout movie slash drawing room mystery. They're just sort right. of trapped somewhere. It's like an mm-hmm. Agatha Christie movie that's four hours long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and this very one, violent. This one was. Um, Long, yes. But luckily, when I saw that the running time was two hours and forty-five minutes, I was like, "Oh, conservative." Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Oh, yeah. You held back. Um, I found it very hard to decide whether or not I liked or didn't like this movie because, for the most part, it, it you just described it as a hangout movie. It almost isn't a movie for two hours. It's sort of like yes. a VR experience through the sixties. Yes, like, it is. Like, like you put on the headset and you can't believe how immersive it is, and you're walking around and like. The Mansons are over there. Isn't that kind Mm -hmm. of funny? Oh, here's like a struggling actor. These are all things that definitely existed in 1969, and you probably could have interacted with them. But it almost doesn't really have, to me, much of an opinion on those things other than they're cool to look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I agree. Um, And also on, on the Tarantino nerd side of this movie... There's a lot of fun, like whatever, signs for movies you have completely forgotten about. My favorite one that I saw was a sign for Pretty Poison, which is a movie with Anthony Perkins and Tuesday Weld from the late 60s. That was cool to see. Well, I love that because on Riverdale, the lesbian <laughs> um, archer gang is called the Pretty Poisons. In the this last movie tw- is really good for Riverdale fans. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but, but you know what I will say about this movie also? Uh, Andy McDowell's daughter is now just taking over. This woman is great in everything. Her name is Margaret Qualley. She mm-hmm. plays a uh, pussycat in this movie yeah. who's part of the Manson gang. Yeah. She She's plays Anne Ryan King on um, Fosse Verdon. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was in The Leftovers. Correct. Yeah, either you're sort of absorbed in the ambiance of it and, and taking it 
and you meet it on those terms, like you enjoy that anyway, so you like it. But otherwise, like there's nothing about the plot that is particularly inventive. No, I would say. Yeah, what's interesting about the film is it does mean that you have to be a Tarantino fan to at least even enjoy it or know what's happening, right? Because you're just sort of sitting in this milieu for hours yeah, um, before the last 45 minutes where something happens. And you sort of also have no idea who the fucking protagonist is. Correct. Uh, Who's this movie about? Uh, And once you're towards the third act, you realize who it is about. And you're like, oh, okay, now I've got it. Right. But before then, you're just sort of watching these different characters interact and these different set pieces. And it's really sort of him taking everything that he's loved in cinema and everything that we've seen in his past movies and sort of put it all together. It felt like watching Roma. Sure. You know, yeah, it felt that's accurate. It felt like a very long love letter to cinema, to nostalgia, much the same way that Alfonso Cuaron uh, made Roma to, you know, sort of be a love letter to his childhood you know, right. where he grew up. But it sort of is a thing where it's like, it feels like having a conversation with him almost. Yeah, you know? right. I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be like having a conversation with like me or Lewis in 40 years. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. when we finally make that like grand 2010s movie. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just like, oh, here is like a collection mm-hmm. of things that I love that I'm bringing up and maybe I'm connecting them in some weird way. It was, I mean, it was yeah. sort of like if he was doing a podcast about the 60s. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. in the way that like, and Roma's like this too, everything feels like a detour. And then once you get to the end, it sort of all lines up in retrospect. But at the same time, you know, like there's a scene where Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays this aging Western TV star, just has a conversation with his young female mm-hmm. co-star who's like eight years old. For, yeah. See, I thought she was not good. And that what? part was contrived. I'm so sick of precocious kids in that mold who are like, I have a response for everything you say. I understand all the adult issues. Oh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that part of the film involved one of my favorite parts. I liked how um, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, Rick Dalton, is on set for this Western. And all of a sudden, we're just in the scene as it would be happening on the TV show. True. And you don't see the cameras, you don't see anything um, happening behind the scenes, and we only realize that we're really in the scene until he calls for line. Yeah, um, right, right. I liked the sort of tricks that he was doing with editing in this film, like how we would just sort of drop a flashback into a scene right. and then drop a flashback into a flashback. Yeah. Uh, on the note of what you were saying, though, of like how it's like very like nostalgic and whatever, like a love letter. I feel like a part of that and maybe this isn't even worth mentioning because I feel like it's so obvious that like we know this. We know that he's like a misogynist mm-hmm. that like a lot of that was like, remember how it used to be in Hollywood mm-hmm. when we could like abuse women and nobody gave a <laughs> shit. And we were like, yeah, that was like two years ago before <laughs> me too. Like, we remember. And like, I feel like there was I think what bothered me so much is like, again, like I'm a complicated Tarantino fan. Like, I know that he is a misogynist. I also like his movies. It is like hard to watch a lot of his stuff for that reason. I also feel like there were so many moments in this movie where I just was like, is this serious? Like there's like, you know, 30 minutes in 
Brad Pitt is supposed to be the like cool hip like sidekick to whatever, and then you find out he fucking killed his wife. It, it, and we never. Why did they do or that? Maybe. Why right. did they and do that? We never return to it. And then two things. One, the fact that like we get a flashback of it where it's like, but his wife was such a bitch. She deserved it. So it's like, okay, so he killed his wife, but uh, she was such a nag. And then we go back to the director who's telling him to like get off the set, but then he like drops the whole act and he's like. Look, I don't really care that you killed your wife. My wife just cares that you killed your wife. And it's like, yeah, like we remember what it was like literally it's two years ago when only women were sticking up for like, I don't know, dead women. Yeah. <laughs> right, I right, I just felt right. like there was so much in this movie where I was just like, what is this? And also like, you know, Margaret uh Margaret Qualley. Qualley, yeah. She like she's like what, like a 16 year old and she's just like dying to suck Brad Pitt's dick (laughs) right right which like I understand that's a very common experience yeah he was the hottest thing in this movie he was very hot hot. he's the last hottest man in Hollywood wow you're gonna write that for Salon yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. Um, no I I agree specifically because I said a part of this movie reminded me of Jackie Brown the part the flashback to where Brad Pitt maybe kills his nagging wife on on a boat reminds me exactly mm-hmm. of the scene with Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda in mm-hmm. uh, Jackie Brown, where he just point blank shoots her to death in a parking lot. And obviously it's supposed, it's meant to be extreme and ridiculous, but at the same time, look up that scene on YouTube and see how many commenters are like, I mean, she kind of had a coming. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm sorry. That does engender a certain conversation of, well, I mean, don't, don't nag an egotistical man. Yeah. You know, here's the thing that I would posit about that scene. And then I'll answer your YouTube thing. Um, I think that we're not supposed to trust a lot of what happens in the movie as far as narrators go, mm-hmm. because I know that Quentin Tarantino reveres Bruce Lee, obviously from like Kill Bill, which has such like a huge homage to him um, from Enter the Dragon in the yellow jumpsuit. But he sort of plays him like a caricature in the Brad Pitt scene, the flashback. And part of it was sort of like, is he really making him sort of like a mockery and a dumb character? But then it made me think, is Brad Pitt telling this story the way that it actually happened? And then mm. I'm like, when we see the flashback of his wife, are we seeing his wife the way that she actually was? Interesting. Right, that's fair. And a lot of the other flashbacks from people when they're talking about being on set and when um, they're seeing things, you right. know, it's like the scene of the movie, you know, where like the younger actress is like, that's the best acting I've ever seen. Like, mm. did that happen? Right. right. Yeah. That's fair. I just feel like the thing that did irk me the most was that it felt like a lot of like glamorizations of these things, you know, like I think that we were supposed to think that Brad Pitt was like even cooler because he was like this big macho, like killed his wife mm-hmm. kind of guy. Like even I think the flashbacks to like the Playboy Mansion, it just was very like, remember how it used to be when women were objects and we're like, mm-hmm. right, yes, right, we right. do. <laughs> well, it definitely feels like the work of a film director who is realizing that time has sort of passed by without him. Yeah. You know, he started out in the 90s as this sort of revolutionary upstart, like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. They yeah. were the movies shaking um, the film industry at that point. They were like like the mashup against Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump at the Oscars. And don't forget year. Quiz Show. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it was the idea of like the the establishment versus new cinema, right? And somehow Tarantino throughout the 2000s by being very popular 
became the establishment. Right. And now right. he's looking back at his old tricks aren't really shocking anymore because time has moved on. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want that sort of perspective anymore. So you can sort of see him longing for that. And I think he's trying to reckon with that in Leonardo DiCaprio's character and somewhat in Brad Pitt's character. You know, I think that he knows that he is an asshole, you know, and I think he knows what we think about his relationship with Harvey Weinstein and what he did to Uma Thurman on the set of Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is replayed in Brad Pitt and Leo's characters. In the car scenes. Yeah. Right. Some people will view that and be like, oh, this is cool. I like him. Like those people in the YouTube comments, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But then there's other people who will sort of analyze it and be like, he is an asshole. Something I think about after having watched this movie is just the point of Margot Robbie in it. That's what I was going to say. There was, okay, so Margot Robbie (laughs) plays Sharon Tate and for, I went into this movie thinking like, are we just going to get her like doing the pony for, you know, two and a half hours? (laughs) And we we kind of did. Yeah, I mean, especially that uh, canned stuff of, Remember when she was yeah. asked, why don't you have any lines? And yes. Tarantino was mad about it. And then you watch this and you're like, that bitch really didn't have any lines. Right. <laughs> like 15 lines. Yeah. No, and she is sort of this vague idea of Sharon Tate. Like there's a, she does get one specific scene with uh, Cape Berlant. Cape Berlant is so I funny. Gasped. Yes. Yes. I gasped. <laughs> when, she, when she takes the camera, she's like, well, maybe can you step in front of the poster so people know it's you? Yeah. <laughs> right. Cruel. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Margot Robbie has one major scene where she goes and sees herself in a movie, this movie called The Wrecking Crew. And uh, she just is delighted by herself in the theater. Mm-hmm. And we sort of see that she has, you know, a budding movie career. There's a scene with Polanski earlier and her ex-lover who she still lovers with along with Roman Polanski. But then you don't get any other context about her until the end of the movie when the people who are supposed to ki- kill her are in fact killed by Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm going to suggest going into this movie, you sort of guess that's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. You know right. what I mean? Like, why do this unless you're going to revise the it's history? It's also called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah, right. I think a fairy it, tale. Yeah. And yes. I think it was like maybe Justin Chang pointed out in his uh, LA Times review that you know, he sort of uses the once upon a time thing when he's showing you them alternate histories about to happen. Like, I think the first chapter of Inglorious Bastards is once upon a time and not. Oh, brilliant. Oh. I get it now. I get it now. I also hope we're conveying that a main reason we are getting into this movie, not just because it's the most successful Tarantino opening of any of his ever, is it's a movie like um, like Us earlier this year, or I'm trying to think of another one before that, uh, not Get Out, but Us specifically, where you really can go either way on this, and there's a lot to interpret mm-hmm. and a lot to not get. Yes. So you leave this movie thinking, did I like it? And, and again, because it's a VR headset type movie, you you take it off and you're like, well, I'm just back in real life now. Did that do anything to me? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I don't so know. So I'm reconciling that. I feel like I, I there's a lot of stuff I would have been willing to not necessarily like excuse, but it wouldn't have like bothered me as much if he utilized like Margot Robbie or I, I just felt like a lot of the very interesting stuff that could or that could have been very interesting, like Sharon Tate, mm-hmm. the Mansons, you know what I mean? Like even Roman Polanski, he doesn't really touch on Roman Polanski at all. Mm-hmm. There's not even some like, you know, like tongue-in-cheek commentary about like what will happen to Roman Polanski or anything. I think that's one of the weirdest parts that's hitting me. Yeah. Just because he has that history of having defended Roman Polanski on Howard Stern in like 2003 where he's like, the girl wanted it. Uh, Yeah, and and he didn't necessarily make Roman Polanski like 
awesome. Like it wasn't like he was super glamorizing him. It's just that he didn't really touch on it at all. Yeah. It was just interesting. I felt like we were kind of just like dancing through this long two hours and 45 minute movie about all these things that could have been really cool, including Margot Robbie, who had 15 lines. And she, that piece you were talking about where she defends herself as saying like, well, I think you learn a lot about my character without me having to speak. And it's like, do you believe that? (laughs) Right, right. Do you have self-worth? You're Margot Robbie. Even her last scene, right, is delivered through an intercom and you don't actually see her. I know Tarantino is a person who loves movies, obviously. And if you're a person who lives in L.A., you obviously know how much 1969 just sort of changed the industry. I mean, Joan Didion wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just like the Manson murders uh, just sort of really just shocked L.A. And I think that to sort of be in this city and to be, you know, where El Coyote still is and like people weirdly still go and want to sit in the same booth that Sharon Tate sat in before she was killed, which... Weird. I like morbid things, but that's sort of weird to me. Yeah, that's uh, weird as shit. And, you know, it's just sort of a thing that filters through L.A. and it's just sort of been hanging there for decades. And I could see his obsession with it and I could see him wanting to make something about it. But I could also see him realizing that there's really no interesting story there that hasn't really been told. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, save for going the Inglorious Bastards route and making Sharon Tate the protagonist who murders the Manson family while pregnant, <laughs> um, which you seems know, very him, like, actually. I know, was, I know <laughs> right? Um, there's just sort of him realizing I can use this to tell a story about myself using these two right. characters. But I know I do appreciate the fact that um, there's a movie like this in August that's huge and an original uh, studio movie for us to be having this sort of conversation. It's how I feel about Mother, too. You know, just like, well, at least something that insane was released to that many people and they got to hate it in person. It's (laughs) self-indulgent, but, you know, what artist isn't, you know? And I think it's more interesting when an artist is self-indulgent because it gives you more things to talk about. I feel I didn't feel much during the movie. Like I didn't really like laugh. I didn't cry. I didn't. You know what I mean? I will say the one thing that I actually enjoyed was the like running bit of Leonardo DiCaprio coughing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Never gets addressed. But like just that he's like really going through it in so many scenes and nobody's ever like, hey, man. Are you okay? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think I did get like a little misty at the end, you know? I I laughed at the trailer scene where he was like throwing shit around and yelling at himself mm -hmm. because that's, I like seeing actors hating themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Also, I just want to give a shout out. There's a sequence where Margot Robbie shows up at a party with Michelle Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas and they meet up quickly Mm -hmm. with Cass Elliot and there's a big dance sequence. Guys, that is why I go and see this movie because that was (laughs) rad as hell. That woman looked like Cass Elliot. I was not over it. My final thought on this movie is that the Leonardo DiCaprio character is the second best portrayal of an actor in Hollywood since Ocean's 8 when Anne Hathaway did it. Daphne Kluger? Yeah, Daphne Kluger was the best and most realistic portrayal of an actress working in Hollywood. (laughs) She really was the triumph in that movie. Ocean's 8 is the only movie I've ever seen where Cate Blanchett gets nothing to do. Mm. Uh, She didn't need anything. uh, She She was just like chewing gum and it was hot. (laughs) And also like diluting vodka was her big scam. So strange. Uh, 
And it goes without saying, I think the soundtrack is amazing, but he always has great soundtrack. Oh my yeah, God, yeah. I love uh, the soundtrack. I loved yeah. all the Paul Revere and the Raiders songs. Yes, and I loved the uh, Judy Collins cover of Joni Mitchell's The Circle Game was in it too. Yeah, yeah. and maybe my favorite moment, the um, lights coming on on all the marquees in Los Angeles. Oh, that was fabulous. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. And then it ends on El Coyote. Uh, anyway, we'll be right back with Margaret Chow. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis. Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Trader. <laughs> 
We are delighted to be here with stand-up comedian Margaret Cho. Hi. Hello. Hi. This is such a joy to have you here. I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah. I almost cannot remember a time you not only were not in my life, but were not you were a dominating voice in my head I constantly. Love, you, were, I you, were the, you were the first person I ever heard talk about having gay friends before I even oh. understood. Ha- like, you know how like the movie Truth or Dare is like that for me, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know? for sure. You know, like gay people, they're fun and there's specific value in knowing them. <laughs> well, it was always like, yeah, practicing the blowjob on the Evian bottle. Correct. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're like a kid watching Truth or Dare, it's like blows your mind like wow Mm. how um free-spirited and sexual but then like later on going back and watch it it looks really tense yes that scene (laughs) where she's like on the bed with all of her dancers and she's kind of forcing them to be real with her or like let's act like we're friends yeah participating Mm. in her levity kind (laughs) of yeah yeah let's let's pretend that we have this level of intimacy all the time yeah that's kind of what it it looks like to me it looks coerced yeah 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 (laughs) uh what's exciting about lewis bringing that up too is um so your upbringing too your parents owned a gay bookstore in san francisco Mm -hmm. and i was recently rewatching some old episodes of All American Girl, mm-hmm. which are all on YouTube. Yes, 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 yes. And it was interesting. Your parents in that show own mm-hmm. a bookstore, too. Was there ever a conversation with ABC? I know that there was a lot going on yeah, with that yeah. show. Um, but just about, this is set in San Francisco. Right. Where are gay people? I know. It's, it's weird because that just didn't, it didn't come into, like, their, their mind at all, this should happen. I think what it was, was they were sort of trying to placate me saying like, if this is a hit in this first year, then we'll be able to, to do whatever we want. And they were showing uh, me Roseanne kind of as an example, like she's able to do whatever she wants because she played uh, the game for mm-hmm. the first year when it became a hit. And now she's, you know, but it's like this thing of like, uh, I was just, okay, well, I, w- I, I just want to survive on the air. Um, but yeah, it's like weird to not include gay people in San Francisco. Also, the, my parents' bookstore was, they there was like this, um, you know, those spinning racks of books. They had like a romance um, section, but it was all gay novels. Mm-hmm. And they were all like, the titles were like Cobalt. And teal, and like they were like colors, and they'd have like a a boy on the you know the the front was could have been more than like twenty two, in like a tank top, like a blue tank top, and cut off jeans, and then and he'd be like walk like a drawing of him walking through like a forest, and it was sort of these like gay romance novels that. Like a Harlequin romance, but it was gay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we had that and you couldn't show it. Weird. Yeah, mm. grim. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy yeah. how gay people are people now. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. so weird. How strange. It's yeah. so weird. Yeah. But yeah, now I look back and I think, do we have the gay romance novels now? I mean, we should. Maybe. They're all in my basement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're all here. Um, they're all, they, you know, they should be in somebody's library. I haven't mm-hmm. seen them for a while. So yeah, I, I feel like the sort of pop culture things that existed for gay culture that were a bit more they weren't mainstream they were just mm-hmm. but they were everywhere because yeah. you know we just sort of had to exist in these spaces mm-hmm. now that gay culture is more mainstream they're not there mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. 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 so it's um yeah but the the way where i grew up there was a lot of there was a lot of ways that you could kind of like um consume it's not hardcore pornography because it was like drawn 
So the, this is an era where we had a lot of like like cartoons, almost like Tom of Finland yeah, style, mm-hmm. like comic books, and um, the heroes were were just drawn like with very lantern jawed, very like Tom of Finland characters, and but they were uh, participating in really hardcore sex, which could happen because it was illustrated and it wasn't mm-hmm. photographed. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some photographs too, but they were more like magazines that were sort of like um, honcho, which were. Like or like Playgirl. I think we had Playgirl. Mm-hmm. Also, not hardcore, but just like physique magazines and stuff. Yeah, talking a bit about uh, your comedy, I was looking at some older, uh, like one of your Just for Last sets mm-hmm. from like '93. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel now about you know s- attacking um, race and things in your? comedy as opposed to how you had to do that in 93 because it was so interesting hearing you talk about how you would go up and make like an Asian driver joke mm-hmm. because there were so many white comedians right. doing that before you mm-hmm. but that's probably not the same experience now. No, it's more that um, at at that time like in the 90s um, w- was about introducing the idea of having a woman of color who was a comedian like that was just like you almost had to explain to the audience, you like, I know you know that I know. <laughs> that kind of thing of like, it's, it's it was sort of in, broaching this idea of identity and like think, I'm go- you're going to be fine with me. Trust me, it's going to be okay. Um, just because I'm not a man and I'm not white, it's still going to be fine. And so it was a constant reassuring them. Whereas now, of course, um, it's very different where you, you have the ability to do anything really. But at that point in time and, you know, early in my career, it was really about making the audience feel at ease that there was a woman in charge, that there was a person of color in charge, that possibly there could be queerness, possibly there'll be some feminism, possibly progressive, but we're not going to push it. You don't want to like uh, be overstay your welcome, you know, wear out your welcome. So it, it was a weird time to like kind of communicate even self at that point. Yeah, I feel like that's hard on your psyche too. Like mm-hmm. even just having to to embody that and like cater to them mm-hmm. can feel good for you, not just as a comedian, but as like a human being. Yeah, it's weird. But then you got used to it because when you're kind of coming up in this like cultural, uh, like colonialism, mm-hmm. in a sense, it's television was and, and entertainment was back then. Uh, and just being somebody that was just so different that you couldn't even you, you couldn't even question it. So you just had to totally. sort of fit in and do it. Um, and you would sort of do it like um, without even knowing so now it's definitely like, oh, it's so exciting because it's it's a very different time. And, you know, we can punish everybody through social media. <laughs> <laughs> Something I think about with people like you and even people like, um, like Jim Carrey or people who amassed so much respect for their comedy somewhat quickly in their careers. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like you went through all the benchmarks of I am a huge comedian very early. And mm-hmm. I feel like comedians are people who... Um, probably get bored easily with most people, with most <laughs> situations. Yeah. So when you have all these milestones so early, is it super difficult to challenge yourself to do new things that you actually enjoy? I mean, like you already had the book that was amazing, mm-hmm. uh, books oh, that you. were amazing, the tours that were amazing. Yeah. I saw Cho Revolution uh, 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 in DePaul in oh, 2003. Wow. Yes. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yes. But anyway, you had all you you did all the things. You yeah. were in movies. Yes. So then after that, are you just like, well, I have to invent something new for me to do that's awesome? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because comedy itself is such a hard job and so that every every time you do it you're you're um you have to kind of really deliver because I think your notoriety or fame can only buy you maybe about 
30 seconds of an audience's good graces, then you yeah. really have to be mm-hmm. funny and good. So yeah. it's such a challenging job in in that, you know, you really have to deliver that. I feel like we, we could never really get that complacent. Um, also, it's weird that people who are famous kind of before 2004, seven or 2008, we have to tell everybody that we were famous because they, <laughs> they don't know. Yeah. They can't find it. They're like, oh, well, it's not online. Yeah. So you don't know. They're like, you're not a meme. So I don't recognize it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like we're like kind of before recorded history. <laughs> so you're really, you're, you're taking me on my word. So that's, it's just like everybody's sort of, you know, collective memory. Maybe this happened. I think it did. Well, particularly with even your series, because it was on for one season. Mm-hmm. And so it, and it wasn't even one that was one season, but then sort of replayed a lot in mm-hmm. syndication or something. Right. It's like kids today or anyone familiar with like 90s or something, pop culture, they're thinking like friends, you know, right. it's like we even sort of got that with, I feel like we talked so much about Roseanne now yeah. and, you know, just sort of like the things that she was doing and saying on social media. Mm-hmm. And you feel like people would forget things that she had sort of said yeah. in the 2000s right. just because it's not recorded. Yeah. You know, I, and I think she changed too. Mm-hmm. She changed really drastically, which is, which really is terrible. Mm-hmm. And she changed for the worst, which, you know, <laughs> is, is really the, the worst part about it is that, you know, anybody who was a fan of hers back in the 90s would be very disappointed who she is now, mm-hmm. I think. But uh, yeah, you don't, you, maybe she was kind of doing something like that then too, but we don't have that recorded mm-hmm. thing, that log. Uh, are there some people from, I think, who you were maybe coming up with, who you were doing comedy with in the 90s, who you feel like maybe they're still doing great stuff now or maybe some people you miss that we don't know about? Um, I think Ellen, of course, is the great example of somebody who really thrives, mm-hmm. you know, of course, from that era. Um, I uh, opened for her a bunch in the beginning. Um, and then uh, Brett Butler was another one of our sort of contemporaries. Mm. Um who was, uh, you know, doing lots of lots of different things um, and was also like a sitcom comedian. Yeah, Grace on the Fire was great. Yeah, mm. so um, I always ex- really admired her comedy. Um, I think like the era of, like Greg Proops is a contemporary of mine who I... God, I, I love I, him. I love him. I mean, I think he's really a genius and, and really just a special man. Paula Poundstone is another. Yeah. I, I cannot get over how people do not talk about her enough. She To me, like her saltiness was so genuine. Mm. I mean, and you're in this world too where it's like, when I watch your your first specials, to me, it still feels very fresh, not just because of a, a lot of the content is fresh, but because there is a plain spoken, like, I, I know I am getting the real her right now and she's not making it up <laughs> and good. no one is like her. That's mm-hmm. good. You and Paula are very much like that to me. That's really good. I'm so glad. Yeah, I wanted to be Paula Poundstone for a while and I, I would wear like bow ties. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and like, and but like also um like elbow gloves. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't really make sense. Like, and also like a really colorful vest, like a wacky vest. There was this thing of like, mm. like dressing like a comedian, which yeah. I think Paula Poundstone really is kind of in my mind. Like, oh, I've got to be like that. I've got to wear a lot of blazers. Yeah. And a wacky vest <laughs> and a bow tie. She went to like a zoot suit place too. Like, she like, did. like, it, like there was a uniform. And then she's like, I'm going straight up to the Bugs Bunny suit place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she definitely had that kind of like the suit kind of gene. But um, also, she was very creative if you like went to go see her often, which I did, um, she would go into the audience and put on people's clothes in the um, that I left there. Somebody went to the bathroom. She would like go in your seat and just take all your stuff out of your pockets and like talk about what was there. I mean, she just really 
creative and, and wild and different. So very funny, very salty um, and such a political progressive, but also really like just playful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you find that um, maybe your audience has changed somewhat um, since back then? I mean, obviously it has. I mean, because there you were performing and sort of having to present yourself at the idea of here's a woman, mm-hmm. here's a woman of color doing comedy. And now are you seeing um, more audiences who you know sort of just look like you or yeah. get what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, which is really good. And then also like... I see a lot of people who have grown up with uh, my comedy and, and then they're introducing their kids to it or, you know, also people that remember me as being the first Asian American they saw on TV, which is a really significant thing. I think the most important thing is like the fact that I influence people uh, who now have really big com- comedy careers like Aquafina or Ali Wong or Ken mm-hmm. Jong, those guys. Like, I love that they got inspired by seeing that I was doing it and that they could do it too. So that to me is, I think the greatest achievement is if you can inspire others to do something like that's really cool. Who was really inspiring you back then? I mean, I know you talked about how you were working um, at the bookstore with your parents. You know, mm-hmm. it was sort of amidst the AIDS crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, just sort of like you fell in the comedy. And Mm -hmm. um, what was sort of inspiring you to be a comedian then? I think, um, well, Armistead Mopan was uh, an author. He wrote The Tales of the City and he's he's a really, he's a great guy. He also, um, you know, the TV shows and everything, but the legacy of San Francisco and and the gay life there and all these like intertwining stories. They're very, it's like, he's like the Charles Dickens of San Francisco. So Mm -hmm. he was really inspirational to me. Um, And then I think always Joan Rivers, just because she was so powerful and so tiny. Like she was this little lady um, who uh, just, and also she was so dirty. I would get embarrassed. Like I would go see her and I would be embarrassed. I mean, I'm really hard to (laughs) make embarrassed. I would be so embarrassed. And she just really always got to me in that way. Um, So they were really inspirational. There weren't a lot of Asian comedians then. There was Tamaya Otsuke, who was uh, Sam Kinison's opening act. She was his girlfriend too. And she um, was from Japan. She's still around. She's she's really interesting. Um, but she would do comedy sometimes in a samurai outfit, which is really <laughs> cute. And uh, there was Johnny Yoon, who was, um, he would like do The Tonight Show. He's Korean and he, he would do uh, The Tonight Show in the 70s. And so there was a few Asians, but not, they weren't Asian American. Um, and uh, so the there was nobody like that I could look up to, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, uh, uh, additionally, what is writing stand-up for you like now? Does it feel exactly the same as when you did it in, like, what when you started out? Or is it, like, a thrill to sit down and write? Or is it a pain in the ass? Or what is that process like? It's kind of the same. Yeah. Um, I have more now, like, I, I, I end up texting myself things more now. <laughs> I didn't have that ability then. I didn't even do it in the early 2000s because I had a flip phone, so it's hard to text. Yeah. You have to do all the numbers and the... <laughs> right, you, you have know. to like solve the text. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot. So, um, but, you know, in general, it's the same process. And then if something works, it's a surprise. And something fails, it's a surprise. You just never really know. Things that you think are funny may not be funny to other people. And then the things that you don't think are funny may be hilarious. So you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, for someone who's had such a long career in stand-up. This is something I've always wanted, too. You know, it's like for so many artists, it's easy to sort of borrow from yourself, right? Or, you Mm -hmm. know, sort of use older things. Are there ever times where you're like, this joke or something I told in 93 was really fucking funny. I'm just mixing it back in. Oh, yeah, yeah. But because I think like the philosophy of it is every comedian is really just one joke or two jokes. Like they're they're, (laughs) uh, they're, uh, like identity really is like 
the, their presence, it kind of means something. So my joke really is, I'm not supposed to be here, but I am. Mm-hmm. And so that joke is Ooh, retold awesome. every time in every form. So you just sort of like for the ph- philosophy of comedy in that way to work, you have to figure out what your joke is and then find all of the really creative ways to tell it, you know, in all sorts of ways. So it's it's really uh, finding different ways to use a story to amplify that point, I think. So that that's um that, so definitely use the same ones. I know that Joan Rivers had like a file cabinet where she had all of her jokes and then she would write something and then you could just put in the name that was relevant. So for a long time, it was Elizabeth Taylor. But mm-hmm. then you could put in a Kardashian mm-hmm. in there or a Hadid. <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe like Debbie Reynolds, and, you know, like it could be a Hadid. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> or like, um, yeah, Shirley MacLaine and Warren Beatty could be like Hadid, Bella and Gigi. <laughs> I like a Hadid. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> a Hadid. Because there's these archetypes that keep occurring through um sort of like the way media. that we look in media and, and society that we can take jokes. And if you're around for a long time, you just learn how to do this. You just slot in a different, the different person or the applicable person of the era. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, um, that's really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've also now jumped into podcasting. Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. Have the You've had a couple show. of versions of that yeah. over the years. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 for sure. How do you like podcasting? It's great. To... I love it. Well, it's, it reminds me of talking on the phone. Like this would be like totally. a like a party <laughs> yeah, yeah. line, yeah. you know, like where you would call in and like listen oh to God, people yes. talking. Um, and that, that's that's kind of what podcasting is to me. It's like I'm overhearing people talking on the phone, or I'm talking on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Even this just feels like we conference each other, and we're like, "Do you guys want to like get together tonight?" Or yeah, yeah. yeah, we're just doing a conference. Like, and it's like because um, when I uh, was little, I would I would go. My mom would have these lunch parties at the restaurant, and I would like lay under the table and I would listen to all of their conversations and I would like go in their purses and eat their lipstick. But <laughs> I would also listen to them because it was fascinating to me to listen to all these moms not be moms. Like they're talking to each other as women, not as yeah. wives, not as mothers, but as women who were like dealing with stuff. And so it's so like, it feels really um, like wrong to listen in on things where your mom's not being your mom. Right. Right. It's right. Scary. Intimate. Yeah. It's scary and intimate. And you're just like, you don't know if you want to do this, but you're you're really drawn to it. So that's kind of what podcasting is. And so what I would like to bring to it is I would like to talk to people who people know who are famous, but talking to them in a way that they're not known to the public, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my idea. But th- it's, it's sort of like what I get out of listening to podcasts is, mm-hmm. is like I'm listening in on people's private conversations. Yeah, I'm always having like a very just sort of real conversation with like a friend here and mm-hmm. then I forget that oh my parents will sometimes listen to yeah, oh, right. yeah. and it's not the same thing as you're performing something or right. your parents are coming to it. It's mm-hmm. like they could just be at home on a Friday yeah. 4 p.m. Oh, I'm listening to this. Mm-hmm. And they heard something you said weeks ago. Right. Yeah. And then then it's like it, it's a window into your psyche that they're not always privy to. And I think that's I think what everybody's appeal towards this is, is that um, you're letting people in on an area of your life that that is not really well known. It's not as curated as what we present to the public on like the stage or in television or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's it's more it's private because the the sort of setting of it is private. Mm-hmm. So that there's a sort of intimacy that comes forth. Yeah. Um, you know what I was just thinking about? I feel like the heyday of awesome places for comedians to showcase themselves on TV, for example, like like the age of whatever, uh, hour-long comedy specials on HBO or Comedy Central, 
whatever. Like, I feel like you would just see like panels with comedians on them all the time. And we have less of that now. Is there any like particular way comedians used to showcase themselves that you miss? Um, oh, God, there was this TV show in the 70s called Make Me Laugh. Oh, yeah. They re- which they, they, they reboot- remade. They yeah. rebooted it a couple of times where, you know, somebody would just sit there and those comedians would like get up in their face. And I think... I would hate to do it. Um, <laughs> I would hate to be on there because I, I'm not really that kind of comedian, but I really love it because it's just so like ridiculous and comedians really trying to get up in your face and do stuff. Um, that is fun. I love like the love boat. I love like when lo- like your love, love of like love boat fantasy island is I so love- specific and I love that shit. Yeah. I love it. Like love boat fantasy island or like any of those like, yeah. 80s Aaron Spelling, not 90s Hotel. Aaron Spelling. Yeah, yes. Hotel. I'm a huge Aaron Spelling fan. Yeah. So, like, I actually miss the fun anthology soap comedies that yeah. he used to do. You know, you get one, st- like, three crazy stories happening in one mm-hmm. episode, and then you move on. Right. And then he would get, like, really high-minded on the love boat. He would have, like... Like, uh, you know, Andy Warhol or, <laughs> you know, or then like the Pointer Sisters. Like he got very creative with mm-hmm. like um, who, you know, the musicians and like people that he would have. Like Charo was almost a cast member because Charo yeah. was on kind of all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting to know about that because um, I think just finally we were talking before about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm-hmm. and the Tarantino directed episode of All American Girl mm-hmm. has like the Fantasy Island sequence in the <laughs> diner. Yes. 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 Uh, so was that part of you being like, I love this, I want this in here? Yeah, and also he has a real appreciation of that kind of stuff and you can see it in his movies, you know, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that he really loves about entertainment and Hollywood and, and him bringing that back in, in the different forms. Um, so yeah, it's definitely like, I think our generation has a real effect for that time. There's some, some sort of like an innocence around the show business then. It didn't mm-hmm. seem as corrupt and nasty. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. I just want to say quickly about the TV show Hotel. This is like a gayish thing people either forget or don't appreciate or what. Betty Davis was supposed to be the star of this show about a woman who ran mm. a goddamn hotel. Yeah. Betty Davis fell ill, right? How much longer could she live? And she was literally replaced by Ann Baxter from All About Eve. Mm-hmm. So All About Eve happened, people. It's incredible. Yeah. It's It became a documentary. Yes. <laughs> it's a, That's really incredible. I, I didn't even realize that. You're so right. It's very disturbing. It's, All of them intense. ended up on those spelling shows. What was it? Uh, oh, right. All those people. Barbara Stanwyck oh, yeah. was, Thorn uh, Burns, was on the Colby's. Colby's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we really just need is a reboot of Fantasy Island or Love Boat starring yeah, you. Fantasy Island. Yeah, I would love. <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could. Yeah, I could rock like a Ricardo Maltonball, Mr. <laughs> How is he a Rourke? Like, I, like, I, like I, I keep on thinking, it's like, is he Irish? Is Rourke? Because I think that's like very. But I mean, yeah, of course. And then um, Tattoo. Yeah. Who didn't have any tattoos. No. Correct. <laughs> um, but, you know, and it was like, tattoo, was that supposed to, like, mean, like, copy of or picture of a person? Or I'm not sure what his name was representative of, but it was a... They were a, an iconic duo. I like you as a pop culture etymologist, yeah. just like yeah. getting into the, <laughs> the linguistics of these things. Well, there was an element of like Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island was like darker than Love Boat because Fantasy Island would go into like, be careful what you wish for. That was mm-hmm. all Fantasy Island was about. Mm-hmm. And so there was there was sort of a sexual element to it. There was also kind of these weird like, what if I was the better? What if I was beautiful? What if I was smarter? Whatever. What if I was this perfect thing? And then it often turns out to be awful so it's like this there was there's something like really like 
snaky and serpentine about about Fantasy Island that Love Boat Aesop. didn't have. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> like nobody got thrown off the boat in Love Boat. Like there was no like weird caper, like really yeah. terrible things that usually happen on cruise ships. There was no like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, human trafficking. Yeah. There was no, um, you know, forced labor. Like, yeah, indentured servants. There was no like, you know, all of the abuses that really happen on cruise ships you didn't see. Disease. Yes, people abusing Disney songs. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. You didn't see any of that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Margaret. Thank you. Yes, and listen to the Margaret Chow. Yes. Um, when does it come out? It's out now. So I think the episodes you can listen to are the ones with me and Jonathan Venice and Kat Von D. And um, we'll have Quentin on to uh, uh, eventually soon. Um, so th- there's going to be lots of different people on. So you'll have to come on too. Yeah, we I love would to. love it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. In a riveting news story rivaled in importance only by last week's Taylor Swift-Kamala Harris beef. (laughs) Most important story, yes. Apparently, Little Nas X recently rejected the possibility of having presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg collaborate with him on a performance video of Old Town Road during a live variety show hosted by BuzzFeed. What a sentence. Drama. (laughs) What... A 2019. Yeah, That's the ho- very... hosted by BuzzFeed really sealed <laughs> oh, it. BuzzFeed Live. <laughs> it seems like a, a a solution in a game of Clue. Little Nas X yeah. in the parody video with <laughs> Pete Buttigieg at BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs> with the candlestick. Uh, so Little Nas X was the headlining act at a live variety show hosted by BuzzFeed in New York on July 25th. And the event, which was titled Internet Live, featured performances from... Lil Nas X, along with appearances from, I think, Jojo, Jojo Siwa. Uh, Legend. <laughs> this, this tiny white Icon. girl who was on the internet that the internet's become obsessed with. Yeah. 
Who is she, Joe? I don't know, but I will say that I saw her in a diner once. I think like <laughs> she's one of those people that I, I truly know nothing about, but I know a lot about her because she's on the internet and she's like this running joke where I feel like me and my friends send each other memes about her, but I we still don't know who she is. <laughs> anyway, we were in a diner recently and there was like a bow and a ponytail like sticking above the red booth. And I was like, wouldn't that be funny if that was, and it was her. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and it was chilling. Like you said her name three times and she appeared. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is she secretly... 53. Yes. I don't know. She's <laughs> she is either 10 or 53. <laughs> Most influency people feel that way to me. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Judy Bloom. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but at one point, BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief Ben Smith sat down for an interview with Bill de Blasio. Sounds exciting. Our Another next president. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and Daily Beast learned that BuzzFeed was in talks to include Pete Buttigieg, who was pitched on a preliminary idea of appearing via video, reciting lyrics to Old Town Road in some sort of collaboration with the star, um, Little Nas X. But Little Nas X said that he didn't want to appear to endorse a candidate at this early point in the game. And... Okay. That's cans. Also, Pete Buttigieg, just because you slow jam the news once with Jimmy Fallon doesn't mean it's time for this. Listen, he is on a quest to get these black votes. Okay. He's and, an ally. Right. <laughs> he's almost on his seventh one of those. Yeah. Uh, he's gay too, Jim. No, I know. But he does seem more like an ally at this point. He really he? does. I he feel seems like I, the nice teacher yeah, who he helps feels, you come out. Right. There's something really sad about like Pete Buttigieg's energy to me. Like it feels like we like because he is a presidential candidate, we have forced him to strip every part of his like actual queerness away from him so that he is just this like, I don't know, projection of any he could be any person. Yeah. But he is a presidential candidate who is gay. Right. But he, he has that sort of office depot manager. <laughs> yeah. Kind of vibe. And he just has he looks very sad. His eyes. There's nothing. There's no emotion in his eyes. Well, it's a it's a so, solemn vibe that I associate with youth pastors. But he kind of is that, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, uh, he is filled with Christ's love. Uh, what's funny about this is <laughs> this story came from the Daily Beast, who also blew that Kamala Taylor Swift story that was nothing but three tweets into a non-story that was trending because of an article. And very clever. At what point do we say enough Daily Beast? <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's go to weekly. Yeah. You can't do this to us every day. I know. Like, this, was this really you a story? You get one that... story a year. Yeah. I, the I, yearly beast. I thought this was a bigger beef because I was out of town for my birthday and I'm just checking American news at one point and I'm like, is Pete Buttigieg fighting with Little Nas X? What is happening? And then I actually read the story and I was like, oh, this is dumb. But anyway, so Lil Nas X and Pete Buttigieg are having what other situation they're having with each other. But more importantly, Lil Nas X now has the longest running number one billboard song of all time with 17 weeks. 17 fucking weeks. He has blocked Taylor Swift twice. He has blocked Billie Eilish. Shawn Mendes? Yes. Right. The pop girls can't do it. It's so wild. I mean, it's so strange that the song is under two minutes long. Is that the key to it being a hit? <laughs> yeah. But also, like, you, like, love this song, right? Yeah, so... I don't get it I, I at like all. It. I don't get it. I like it, but here's I love the thing. him. I love him. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing that I've realized. Um, looking at this list of songs that have been at number one the longest. 
they are songs that you will either, I feel like, be really annoyed by or you'll really like because I think that they are songs that are technically crafted to be great songs. You know, they're crafted to have mass appeal. That's why they were number one. Mm -hmm. But they're probably not the songs from that artist that you'll even listen to the most. Oh, like this broke the record that was tied um, 16 weeks, Despacito and One Sweet Day. I fucking love Mariah Carey. Me as too. You know. I don't listen to One Sweet Day. Nobody would ever put <laughs> One Sweet Day in her top 25 songs. No, that I, I tweeted this the other day. That song, along with a lot of other um, very well Bill Bird performing ballads of the time, is a, a genre I call crying at prom. You know, <laughs> you know it's very uh, Unbreak My Heart, uh, Take a Bow by Madonna. Just like, I'm weeping here next to the man I will marry. He will leave you in two months, just for the <laughs> record. Um, well, I Will Always Love You was 14 weeks. That's what I'm talking and about. And it's like, that may be, I think... The original crying at prom. Yes, but it also may be the exception because people do listen to I Will Always right. Love You. Well, right. I, I feel like the difference between, like, songs right now that transcend these, like, you know, long-stemming, you know, Billboard, tr- whatever. I feel like the difference between back then and now is back then it's, like, songs that have been, uh, you know, super popular, like that song, that have been around for a really long time that we still listen to. Whereas now, these big songs are just memes. Yeah, <laughs> and, right, like, right. Like, this song, I, you know, I don't want to minimize the song because I think like Lil Nas X is like an important cultural icon, but the song itself is like, it's a meme song. It's like Gangnam Style. It's like something we're going to look back on and be like, oh yeah, that fucking song. You it know was what I mean? cute. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, had, it, imagine if Vine was still around, this song <laughs> would have been all over Vine. Like I think, I don't know. That's how I think of this song. I think of it as just like a meme that we've passed around. Well, if you're a gay man and you have argued about pop music and stats before, you will always <laughs> hear the person going, well, it's different because when Mariah Carey had the charts for 16 weeks, people actually had to leave their home and buy an album, unlike you accidentally listening to Old Town Road right. and it counting for its charts. Right, back then in those days, there were just massive records actually Mm -hmm. you know we were still coming off of that um what's weird is i'm looking at this list and i see (laughs) um i got a feeling the black eyed peas 14 fucking week technically not a song if you ask me (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just an entire bar mitzvah right no (laughs) no it's like someone pushed like a wagon full of toys down some stairs uh i was in the mindset for this because um when i was pre-gaming for a party this weekend i found this youtube uh playlist which had every number one song from 2000 to 2009 i know that playlist i listen to it all the time and so 2009 gets dark such a heavy i actually think 2000 years a fucking great year for pop music you said 2000 Uh, 2009 oh 2009 great year for pop music just in general with like the releases with like kesha and gaga oh sure 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 but the number one charts that year are literally insane i got i got a feeling was there for 14 weeks it came after Boom Boom Pow. Is it that came re- after Boom Boom Pow, which is their second longest running single to stay atop the Hot 100. And that was in 2009, too. It was broken by one week. 2009 um, was a weird time. That's the year I graduated high school. It was like a year after the financial crisis. Like, we were all <laughs> wounded. Right. It was like Boom Boom Pow, several weeks, mm-hmm. uh, Poker Face by Lady Gaga yes. for one week. 
and then 14 weeks of I got a feeling. We were just um, getting dumber is what was happening during that time. <laughs> yes, like willingly. The LMFAO was upon us, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, also, yeah, no, 2009 also had songs like Knock You Down by Carrie Hilson. We did have some, like, quality yes, in there. Yes, but the number ones were, like, <laughs> Jason Mraz, I'm Yours. Um, we are All trash. American Rejects gives you hell. Um, That's a good one. Yeah, My Life Would Suck Without You, which is good. Uh-huh. Uh, Halo, good. which is not good. All of these songs were covered on Glee. Just want to point that out. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're right. This is the Gleeification began around this time. This is the Glee period. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, the writings on the wall just turned 20. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Bugaboo, YouTube, the best song on it. YouTube has, hmm, okay. Yeah. I think it's Jumpin' Jumpin'. Oh, but, okay. Oh, I love uh, that too. Yeah. YouTube had a sort of retrospective, sort of like a pop-up video version of those talking about their Billboard hits. And one of the pop-ups was, this song was covered on Glee for Jumpin' Jumpin'. I was like, what a fact. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine it not being covered on Glee, right. Uh, But I don't know, what does it mean that this song is so big? It's 17 weeks. It's obviously still stayed on the charts too after he came out as well. So that hasn't caused it to drop immediately, which must feel good. Yeah. I think also there's something about this song where it has a, you mentioned the word annoying before, but it's, it's, it's not uh, uh, demanding enough that you would be annoyed enough to turn it off. I think Mm -hmm. it's a song that people keep on. That's my defense of this song. I feel, you know, and again, it's short. So then it's, by the time it's over, you're already a suckered in customer. Right. I think I'm aggravated that this song doesn't have the opportunity to be covered on Glee. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine? Like, actually, we are actually really blessed to not be in an era where Old Town Road is being covered on Glee. I do. I can picture Matthew Morrison in the chaps. (laughs) You know? I'm going to have nightmares for weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to say that I heard another one of these songs, these 14 weeks at number one songs recently. The Macarena came on somewhere in public, which is pretty mm. rare. You don't really hear that song, right? What a morphine heroin levels. Like, truly, it will not leave my head now. Scientists really advanced something and broke right. our brains with that song. I, the production on that song is actually so good. Like that, I don't know what that it's instrument is. It's very crisp, yeah. Just like whatever, what instrument is that? Can I tell yeah. you? It's great. I was in Amsterdam for my birthday. Each time I've been to Amsterdam, each time I've been at a club, no, the Macarena no. comes on. Wow. Well, by the way, you know that song will be remixed into some sort of like um, Kygo Whitney thing. Yeah. And it will be back. <laughs> You're not done with it yet. No, no, no. Well, I just think like that the beat of it is actually so good. If you didn't like actually drop the part where they're like, hey, am I going to know whatever? Yeah. Like yeah. it would just be like a club banger. It yeah. sounds like a 2000s or like even like like 80s yeah. like club banger. The, be- the beat fits for like a gay club, especially like a European one where it's like specifically driven yeah. by beats. But then one. Once you hear the, oh, yeah, no. once right. you hear the lyrics, you're like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, I, I, I'm more embarrassed that like I got a feeling that lasted that long than the Macarena. Right, Macar- like you said, the, the Macarena was like constructed underground by like pop music scientists. Yeah, no, it weaves like it, it like looms through your brain. Like yeah. it, it now lives there. I got a feeling is bad. Also, the Macarena is secretly a song about a woman having a three-way with two of her man's friends while he's out of town. What? Which is, uh, uh, you is know. Is that true? Yes. It, you know there's like a spoken word part that's in English by her, the like Macarena mm-hmm. herself. She makes an appearance. Um, and she says, uh, don't you worry about my boyfriend, the boy whose name is Vittorino. He Something, something. Uh, 
what? And then she goes, uh, what was I supposed to do? He was out of town and his two friends were so fine. Wow. Good point, Macarena. <laughs> I, I don't think Macarena I, is a, a great debater. I yeah. don't think I knew that her name was Macarena. Me yeah. either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Didn't know it was a name. Okay. Well, didn't know she sang. Didn't know she did whatever. Also, but. guys, the video for the Macarena slay. Yeah, no. You can't not pick a favorite in the video. The one black woman in the video, she is the boss of the Macarena. If you have any questions about the Macarena, you have to go to her. She has office hours. Where is she? Come back. Well, my favorite Macarena video is still the 1996 Democratic National Convention. Oh, my God. I can't talk about that. Horrific. horrific. I would describe it as lit. (laughs) Hillary, Hillary wisely watching others doing the Macarena and kind of clapping along while sneaking out of the room. Yeah. She's like, I know it's not going to age. Well, sounds she like her marriage smarter. with Bill. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> when we're back, keep it. And we're back. Our favorite segment of the episode it is Keep It. Jill, why don't you go first since you're our guest? Oh, wow. That is so courteous. Thank you. Um, my <laughs> Keep It is uh, Katy Perry's loss in court. I want you to keep that because. I'm actually, I'm not a Katy Perry fan. I never have been. But don't you feel like she's been through a lot lately? Yes. Can we just let her have Dark Horse? Yeah. <laughs> like, can we let her have this song from like, t- like almost 10 years ago that nobody cares about anymore? Right. So it's apparently ripped off of a Christian rock song. Yeah. Why do Christians hate Katy Perry so much? Well, she killed a nun. Yeah. Well, oh, my God. <laughs> but, which, by the way, that might be the greatest pop culture story I was just of the past 10 years. That is literally my favorite pop culture story. The fact that a nun last words were Katy Perry please stop <laughs> and she somehow smited her by having her lose this court this court case and you know, did she die on the stand yes and let's just be yes. clear the story was Katy Perry bought a convent or something yes. and then turned it into her house mm-hmm. and this nun was protesting her doing that and in court literally said Katy Perry please stop and then perished and died <laughs> in the courtroom imagine I mean <laughs> your entire life is leading the singer of E.T. to stop menacing your home. <laughs> it all led to that. What is beautiful about this is if this were an Aaron Spelling show, it uh-huh. couldn't be scripted. Precisely. Better, right? Because it would be like Taylor Swift would be like the Joan um, Collins character. Like she'd be like responsible for the nun dying. And she'd be like her last words were Katy Perry, please stop. (laughs) Just like in in like 40 years, I want there to be once upon a time in Hollywood, too. And it is about this. It is about like the nuns and the the Catholics in Hollywood and Katy Perry and the court case. (laughs) No, just to be clear, your taste runs very taste way, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, Like religiously? yeah, like religiously. I, uh-huh. I think that I, I, I didn't I didn't know that I was a Taylor Swift fan like through and through until probably Reputation where I was like had this coming out experience myself. I was like, oh, my God, I have always loved Taylor Swift. I don't know why I haven't been defending her more. Um, but I, I, I've i never like hated Katy Perry on account of that. You know what I mean? Like I just I, I don't I just I've never vibed with her music. I've, she's never made me really like feel that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like Witness happened and then, you know, the nun died and she She's been through a lot. Right. The internet loves to roast her. And sometimes, and I do too as well, like, but I, 
I'm starting to feel bad. Sure. I mean, she does sometimes invite it on herself. Uh, oh, didn't she, yeah. Didn't she stream herself live for a weekend? Once? Getting therapy and things? Yes. Truly Isn't insane. Isn't that one of those like iconic like memes that everyone sends around are of like <laughs> yes. her in like pajamas, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, well, you, you know my fraught relationship with... Taylor Swift, yes. obviously. Uh, but also affectionate. I, I I love her, but also I am also annoyed um, so, most of the time People by her are. fans. Um, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes by crazy things that she just, no, you're a sane Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> you also you know? always Anna? pick a funny angle. It's yeah. never it's never just insistence upon her great uh, <laughs> of her greatness. You well, know? Right. I mean, I'm not going to defend her against like, like people have very like have had very valid, you know, criticisms of her. But like, I think there there's a lot of merit to what she does. I think she writes emotionally intelligent pop songs. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, not I, me. Do you but... like the Archer? <laughs> I do like The Archer only because it feels like a return to emotionally intelligent pop songs and me and, um, what is it called? Oh, uh, uh, Calm Down. Yeah. They're both feel like, I mean, they could kind of maybe be bops, but they're both kind of like pop music for babies. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like music that would be on Mario Kart. Yeah. <laughs> or like, I, I tweeted this, but I feel like it's like from the Trolls soundtrack. Yeah. Trolls soundtrack. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Trolls soundtrack is bald was your tweet. Yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, I feel like I was always a Katie fan. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, the I, bangers I, I, were I, always I, there. I, uh, yes. You know, as as a gay man, mm-hmm. um, I love the Katie bangers because mm-hmm. they were always in the club. You know, you loved a dark horse. You loved an E.T. Yeah. You know, I you love loved a e. hummingbird heartbeat. Ugh. You know, what you never Peacock. hear anymore. Wide Awake. Like, yes. That was a great song. Mm-hmm. Wide Awake was fucking great. Uh, and I had to come around to being like, oh, wait, maybe I do like this. Taylor yeah. No, girl. she does have bops. I mean, like everything like Teenage Dream, all that California girls. Mm-hmm. Even I mean, I think I've been I've been asked to write and dissect I Kissed a Girl so many times in my career at this point that I am severely over it. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. But, yeah. But uh, which, uh, you know, that song was also is good and bad for a lot of reasons. Mostly bad. The good part about that song is the line just to try it. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's like pleading like I just was curious. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's so funny. I'm not gay. I just want to make out with a girl. Yeah. Not like in a gay way. Like my friend. Maybe yeah. it'd be fun. Yeah. I don't know. For my boyfriend. It's not what good girls do yeah <laughs> which i kind of like that line i'm like good <laughs> <laughs> all lesbians are bad girls <laughs> you're all will afford yeah <laughs> we all want want to be bad <laughs> uh lewis what is your keep it mine are both stupid so i'm going to apologize oh, for she's got two. yes i do wow. i do have two one is i just heard the name keep it two uh, uh, officially the name of Timothy Chalamet's character in the, I believe, shelved Woody Allen movie, his name is Gatsby Wells. No. Gatsby, G-A-T-S-B-Y, Wells, W-E-L-L-E-S, like Orson, Orson Wells. Gatsby? Like Gatsby? What Gatsby? <laughs> oh, I say what you're doing. <laughs> um, don't name a character Gatsby Wells. I saw this on Guy Lodge, Guy Lodge's Twitter. He's a, a film writer, very uh, smart writer. Um, he's like, if whether what, whatever you think of Woody Allen, this is... Um, an argument for his retirement. <laughs> I, I was like, I hear that. Now Woody Allen is canceled. Right, finally, yeah. I'm offended now. Yeah. Um, I mean, that Kirsten Stewart and Jesse Eisenberg movie was grounds for cancellation. Can I tell you my beef with that movie specifically is that I always forget it's to Rome with love, right? Yes. Okay, it's so confusing because it's a play on from Russia with love. So all of these prepositions are just wrong. 
and it's not officially a play on words either. Because so I don't it's understand. It's not fun. Yeah. It's fun to say. It feels mistranslated or yeah. something. Also, yeah. it's just a bad movie where like Jesse Eisenberg's family is apparently gangsters, and then there's a romance, and then Blake Lively's involved. And then and... I have to wonder, I know Wait, this I isn't doing anything this. for Judy Davis. Yeah, and it really just, just cemented for me that Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Kirsten Stewart have no chemistry well, whatsoever. You, not them even in that, that American that, Ultra or whatever? No, I, I talked about that the other week when we yeah. were talking about um, Max Landis yeah. um, and his murderous dad. Right. Uh, they have negative chemistry well, and in that movie. They're also in Adventureland, yes. right? Because when you said the Christmas story, that's where my mind went because I believe that Adventureland, despite being about a heterosexual romance, is a canonically lesbian movie. <laughs> yes. Oh, I hear that. <laughs> yeah. If you replace Jesse Eisenberg with a woman in all these Christmas Stewart movies, they would probably be better. Yeah. Well, but they are our um, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. We just put them in whatever. You know, the fly, Transylvania 65,000, look it up. Um, They're doing what the other girls aren't doing. I guess. And maybe there's a reason the other girls weren't doing it. The other girls have been, yeah, they're smart. Um, The other thing I'm saying, keep it to, it's the end of July. Um, But still Leo season. Right. My birthday's uh, this Sunday. Um, Wow. Shirtless joggers. Um, here's the thing. <laughs> you running down the street shirtless, you are a bobbling volcano of sweat. I do not like the possibility that you would then hit. Like, I have to dodge you with my um, Trenta iced coffee in one hand. <laughs> you may spray me. And then also, what if I'm driving down the street and you're hot and jogging shirtless? Like you're hot. So I have to get in a car accident. Yeah, so I have to crash. Stupid. Yeah. You're not thinking of me. <laughs> There's also there's something there. I think there's something that just attracts the eye about a shirtless jogger. Like I like I don't identify as bisexual. I am not attracted to men, and I still like if I see like a very cut like gay like running down the street in West Hollywood. Like I'm looking. Yeah, because right. it's just like whoa, look at that. Look at his body. No, How did he do that? There's so many Crash. shapes. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Like oh look, his uh, chest is a perfect yeah. uh, trapezoid. And it would be like doubly <laughs> as unfair if I crashed my car because I'm not even sexually interested in him. I right, because like, then whoa. you're going to court and you're like, oh, I looked at yeah. that guy and they're like, the records here show yeah. you're a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> Canonically, it yeah. says you are a lesbian. But they're also really just peacocking because this is LA and oh, when yeah. it is not hot weather, they are still jogging shirtless. Yeah. No, it, it, it's theater, if yeah. you will. Yeah. And, and we're lacking that in LA. So I attend mm. when I can. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why have this production of Cabaret when you can get a shirtless jogger on Santa Monica Boulevard? <laughs> right. Santa Monica Boulevard is my Geffen Theater. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, well, my keep it this week is for Miss Andy Cohen. I'm familiar with her work. Oh. Yes. Uh Titus Burgess was on <laughs> Watch What Happens Live, a uh, podcast that is filmed every night uh, and airs on Bravo. A and, podcast. Uh, he asked Titus about working with Eddie Murphy on the upcoming film Dolomite Is My Name. Mm-hmm. It's fine to ask him what it's like working with Eddie Murphy. Sure. Um, but then he says, did you get to chat with him at all? You know, he was problematic for the gays at one point when I was coming up. Right. Uh, Eddie Murphy apologized for those AIDS jokes in about 1997. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying there's not there's nothing interesting to mind there, but to spring that question on Titus, his coworker, like that felt 
um, uh, 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 disingenuous. And messy, because yeah. Titus called him a messy queen um, on an Instagram post. And in the moment, uh, Laverne Cox, who was also next to Titus, was like, um, he evolved and uh, acknowledging the apology. And Titus was like, um, girl, do your show. <laughs> right. Well, also um, what it sounded like was that Titus Burgess had said something earlier, maybe in confidence to them. Mm -hmm. And then Andy was like, oh, repeat that or something. like." Because that's what's so interesting about Watch What Happens Live is that Andy Cohen wears a couple of different masks blatantly. He's your best friend, but also he's a TMZ reporter. Mm -hmm. And he will kind of seamlessly weave between we're just a couple of gals chatting and I'm going to get the scoop out of you that I fucking want because he's also Courtney Cox and Scream. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, my thing too is I don't even think it was something that was probably even said in confidence to Andy. I think that Andy just is that messy person who's like Courtney Cox and Scream. He wants a soundbite. He wants people talking about Watch What Happens Live because he's not really getting substantive interviews, right? right? Most of his uh, viral moments come from housewives on the show. So when he has actual celebrities, uh, if they're not a Julia Roberts or something, it's what can I milk out of this? And this was a moment where he was like, you worked with Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy was problematic before. So let's dredge this up. My main problem with this is the fact that one, Andy Cohen doesn't give a fuck about um, Eddie Murphy being problematic in the mm -hmm. past. No. Like, he was problematic when I was coming up. Bitch, you don't give a fuck, you know? <laughs> uh, you also don't give a fuck about just homophobia in general because there are so many homophobic storylines on The Real Housewives that you allow to fester. You are not asking Marlo on Real Housewives of Atlanta um, why she said fag. Um, she's back on the show. Uh, Teresa Giudice's husband um, was notoriously homophobic and you let her and him back on the show. So when it suits you and camera time um, and ratings, you're fine with homophobia. Real Housewives of Potomac right now has a whole gay panic storyline about no. someone squeezing a cameraman's butt uh, and he was caught on camera doing it, one of the husbands. And a lot of it is a conversation about consent, but some of it is devolving into weird gay panic jokes. And he's had nothing to say about that. So when homophobia suits him, mm -hmm. Andy Cohen is fine with it. It sells. Yes. Three, it's really an asshole thing to do that to Titus because Titus is just coming up in his career and Eddie Murphy is immensely famous. What do you think is going to happen if Titus gives a soundbite, Eddie Murphy was homophobic to me um, the next day? What do you think is going to happen to yeah. Titus? Mm -hmm. Why are you trying to fuck up Titus's career so that you can get a soundbite for your fucking show. Mm -hmm. It's dumb. Also, Titus's response was, uh, I've used the word salty too many times in this this podcast <laughs> a lot, but like when he said, it was never a problem for Titus. It was, <laughs> I was like, loving it. Wow. He loved me. And then he makes a face at the camera. And that's yes. when Andy's like, uh, what, are you making a face, Titus? And that's when Titus says, do your show, girl. Yeah, right. That was pretty rad. I'm glad you said that, yeah. Give Titus Watch What Happens Live. Oh, that'd be cute. I will say about uh, Watch What Happens Live, though, occasionally when he has like a legendary actress on, you mentioned Julia Roberts. Like one of my favorite uh, interviews ever with Jane Fonda was on that show, and he can dial into a place of legitimate fandom, and I think that is... Um, I don't know that that probably gets ratings. It's a show that he puts on himself that he stars in. It probably wouldn't exist for any other reason mm -hmm. if, if unless that happened. But... 
you do occasionally get a rad interview with somebody who's a legend that you wouldn't get on fucking 2020 where they ask the same three questions to legends to get it again. So I know. Just tell those legends to come on. Keep it. Yeah. Yeah. Jane, we have a picture of you. Yeah. <laughs> this is a filmed podcast. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we won't ask you what it was like when you were in prison. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or you mean uh, uh, when she got off that flight in Cleveland and sh- uh, she was on the Nixon enemies list. Yeah. And they mistook her vitamins for drugs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jane, we're on your team. Yeah. Anyway, that's our show. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.